I mean, the Queen adored Harry um, right to the end. That you know, and Harry adored her. She met Lilibet and thought, you know, and 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 loved her, her granddaughter. Aww. That was not an issue. What was an issue was the handling of the story that came after the naming of Lilibet. We're back with a very special episode of a Right Royal podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. Now, I'm sure you've seen the recent headlines about Princess Lilibet's name and details surrounding the Queen's death. And these revelations have come from a really exciting new definitive account of King Charles's first year as monarch by royal author and journalist Robert Hardman. Royal fans might have also seen his BBC documentary, Charles III, The Coronation Year. And we are so excited to be joined by the man himself today. But before we welcome Robert, let's have a catch up with someone we'd like to write a definitive account about. Hey, Emily Nash, welcome. <laughs> Hello. So many secrets, Emily. So many secrets. Tell, tell us some. I mean, you know, let's just get straight into this. Robert's book is fantastic. Yeah, it was um, a great read. The level of detail is just jaw-dropping, you know, and bits that I think haven't come across in the coverage so far in the serialisation is, you know, the interiors. He's talking about the interiors at Balmoral. Yeah. He's talking about little things like that that really paint a picture. It's the ultimate behind-the-scenes look at things. He's mentioned things that Charles has been changing around Balmoral. I mean, I don't want to give it all away, but he's got rid of the Queen's old telly. <laughs> yeah, she, he now has a flat-screen one, which is very fancy. Nice, nice. <laughs> you know, I do like reading something as well, knowing that it is all completely true. It's not, you know, it's not from slightly sketchy sources or anything. Yeah. It's like the the man has been following Charles for the last year and he really knows his stuff. Yeah, he's had incredible access and, you know, this has come through decades of hard work and building a relationship with the palace, but he's just got a really good eye for detail. So I think it's a great read and, you know, going forward now over the decades to come people are going to go back to this as as the definitive account of what happened at the coronation you know the detail about the military processions you know the fact that the coronation rehearsal was an absolute disaster yeah <laughs> uh, i think one of the bands went missing on the procession route and it does make you realise just quite how much work goes into these things. He's had a difficult job because the, these last what 18 well year 18 months have been incredible with like so many headlines, so much going on, and yet he had to put it all in around 464 pages. Not that you were counting. Oh, I was counting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We did a bit of a speed read there, didn't we? Yeah, we we did. And uh, honestly, I was nearly brought to tears. I was very emotional when he spoke about the Queen's last hours. It's just incredible the amount of detail there are in those pages. You know, the fact that Charles was caught by surprise, even though he had been, you know, with his mother, he actually went out foraging. Foraging uh, for mushrooms. mushrooms. And it's yeah. all very detailed. There were 20 minutes between being the Prince of Wales and then becoming, you know, a king. Yeah, so he got in the car at Burke Hall, having been told that he ought to get to the Queen's bedside uh, quite urgently. And in the 20 minutes uh, it took for him to get between his residence in Scotland and the Queen's, she had passed. And the first he realised was when one of his aides sitting in the back of the car took a call and then said, Your Majesty. 
to him. I was literally practically in tears. Yeah. It was so emotional. And there's also details about when he made his first speech as a monarch and Camilla was hiding in that room, observing him in tears. Yeah. And she didn't want him to see her crying. So, Mm. you know... He could just do that. She was speech. there for the sort of moral support, but yeah, yeah. but not really because she was like in tears. Like, well, <laughs> you know, I, I cried. Yeah, I, yeah, it was I very. That, I think most people found that deeply, deeply yeah, moving. moving. Yeah. And what really comes across in the book is how emotional Charles is, yeah. um, and it's something we've seen, you know, certainly over the the past eighteen months. But he's really a deeply sensitive man, and there are little vignettes in this book that really convey that. I think there's a lovely line from one of his friends saying he could cry at sunset. Yeah. Oh. I love that. I He's love so in that. touch with his emotions. I, I do think I know Charles better, you know, after reading that book. You know, yeah. his love for a good garden, you know, <laughs> and, you know, a look at what he thinks about his homes, how he's changed since becoming king, how much more cheerful he is now that he's king. And I've just really, really enjoyed this book. One of the other lovely things that comes across is, um, you know, his growing closeness to William. They haven't always had an easy relationship, but that comes across and the affection that's there, which, you know, despite other reports in recent years about a lack of affection, it comes across. Yeah. um, And the closeness he has to his grandchildren at Windsor. So it does really paint a lovely picture. And you've got fantastic voices in there supporting this. You know, Camilla's sister, one of her best friends, but also the Princess Royal. So Anne actually gives some fantastic insights into her brother, even down to the fact that, you know, their senior nanny, when they were children, would refer to him as the future king. So it was very clear from the start what his destiny was going to be. But also how that huge weight of responsibility passed to him the moment their mother died. And she did say it in the documentary that, you know, it was almost a relief when the crown yeah. was removed yeah. from the late queen's coffin. But that meant the burden was going yeah. elsewhere. And she really comes across as, as someone you want in your in your corner. Yeah. Charles is very lucky to have Anne. Can I just suggest to Robert, um, next book can be of Anne, because I really, really love her. <laughs> <laughs> She's so popular, actually. Well, I'm still playing catch up with the book, but I loved the part where he discusses Lilibet's name. Obviously, that's something that's really made headlines um, recently. What were some real standout moments for you? Uh, For me, well, it was things like that and correcting, not correcting, but giving another version of events on some of the stories that have made headlines over the past year. So, Mm. you know, that viral thing about Princess Anne's hat at the coronation, whether or not she wore it deliberately so that Harry was blocked... I really thought that was true. <laughs> Sorry, I believe Conspiracy everything. Conspiracy theorists. <laughs> but, but things like that, details of the, the Queen's final illness, you know, he offers a different account to one that's already out there. It's just interesting to see another perspective on things. Absolutely. I love the more lighthearted moments. I loved the discussion about how King Charles loves to open a window and Camilla's right behind him closing them all down and that they have this bickering on and off about in any residence about the windows. It's so true as well from recent visits actually to royal residences. You, there's, a, <laughs> there's distinctly cooler uh, air. I think <laughs> when we were covering the state visit uh, from South Korea recently, I noticed that it was a bit chillier than usual. <laughs> 
Just love some fresh air, does he? I love, he? He loves fresh air. He likes turning down the heat. And she loves everything to be stuffy, which is exactly what he doesn't want. I think one of her aides says in the book, you know, it's like a sauna in her study. And so she's happy for him to go around opening windows everywhere else. But that's her. I mean, yeah. I would... She's got a Dyson heater in there. <laughs> I would work next to her. I don't think I could work in Charles' study. <laughs> no. Before we chat to Robert, what you want to be looking for in a bookstore if you pick up a copy, which we would definitely recommend. recommend. Highly recommended, five stars. Is <laughs> Charles III, The Inside Story, New King, New Court by Robert Hardman, and that's with Macmillan Publishing. So pick up your copy. Top book, perfect present for, say, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, anything. Okay, Andrea was not. <laughs> Andrea is not getting any commission on the book. Whatsoever. You might be surprised to hear I that. Make that clear. <laughs> so let's get straight into it, Robert. Congratulations! The book is absolutely fascinating. The detail is incredible. What's it been like to have this ringside seat over the past eighteen months or so? Well, it's been a great privilege, really. I mean, you know, it, it has been one of the most extraordinary years in sort of post-war royal history, when you think about it. Well, a year and a half, actually. Um, but to have had the the, dumb and, uh, the platinum jubilee back in uh, the summer of 2022, and then just, you know, a few months later, so you go through the turmoil and, and utter, you know, shock. And it was shock, even though uh, Her Late Majesty was um, not far off 100. You know, it still came as a shock, I think, to the nation and the world. And then... Mm. After that, obviously, the transition to a new reign was going to be huge, and um, I thought, well, this, this is, you know, this is this is proper history. It needs to be recorded. Uh, and anyway, I was lucky enough to be kind of allowed in to record a lot of it. And obviously, there was a documentary over Christmas, and now, now here's the book. And I hope it's it. I mean, it's, look, there are going to be many, many more books written about this reign. Um, many will be, I'm sure, better than mine, but it's it's the first glimpse of a new reign, and I think everyone's interested in that. I mean, it is going to be the definitive account, you know, going through the years to come, and that's something you can be really proud of. So what I'm interested in is there are a few moments in the book where the narrative is gently corrected, so details of the Queen's final illness, the controversy over Lilibet's naming... Even how the Princess Royal's hat was perceived at the coronation. <laughs> how important was it to give another version of events on, on the stories that have made headlines over the past year or two? Yeah, I, I didn't sort of set out, as it were, to, to do this as a corrective. But as you say, I mean, a lot of these stories have gained a lot of traction um, over, over the last year or two. And uh, where I've come across moments or, or, you know, clarifications, if you like, or, or recollections may vary, to coin a, a familiar <laughs> phrase. I've, I've put it in because I think, you know, sometimes narratives just get established and settled and suddenly they become fact, even if they're not fact. I mean, the crown is a classic example of that, where large parts of the world think that everything in the crown is true. And it might be great telly, but a lot of it isn't true. And so, for example, you know, the, the, the story of the Princess Royal's hat, I mean, there was a lot of traffic on social media at the time about people saying, oh, how mean to block Harry's view of the coronation by putting Princess Anne there in a huge hat. Well, it was pure coincidence. The princess had moved her seat very late in the day because she needed to make a quick exit because she was riding a horse back you know, behind the king's carriage. And therefore, she was there. And because Ladies don't remove their hats in uh, in church, according to royal protocol. Her hat stayed on, but I mean, <laughs> uh, it's a very minor point. But um, a lot of people t 
made a lot of noise about it at the time. So it's just nice to to clear up some of these things. And and you know, yeah, there will be a debate. I mean, I'm quite sure some people will have a go at the book. That's fine. That's fair enough. You know, I'm not going to lie. I was 100 percent convinced that that was done on purpose. <laughs> so I'm glad you cl- clarified that. <laughs> Um, it really, it was. I, honestly, I was. I mean, it was. I was there in the Abbey actually um, uh, three days before the uh, before the coronation because I was watching the rehearsals, and the princess came to to check it out. All the royals came in advance just to sort of rehearse and, and look through, you know, what they were supposed to do, and and her seat was some way down that row. And, and at the last minute, she just said, "No, no, no I need to be here because I've got to get out." And they went, oh, right, you don't argue with the Princess Royal. No, you don't. So uh, that's, that's <laughs> I am. Anyway, seating plans, you know, I mean, uh, if you think about it, you ask most people, what, what's your abiding memory of those, of the, you know, the death of the Queen, that, that extraordinary week, the accession? You know, ask people what they think. I mean, obviously, they'll remember where they were when they heard the news. They'll remember the sense of sadness and shock. But actually, what a lot of people will also remember is, is the king's struggle with his pens. Mm. You know, it's often the small details I love that. That, that stick in the mind. And, and I love small details. So I, hopefully there are quite a few of those in the book as well. Can I ask what you will remember the most, for example, from the coronation? Because obviously you were part of the behind the scenes. Mm. What was the, your favourite moment that maybe no one else got to see, for example? That's a really good question. Thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, the, the coronation itself. I mean, what, what was actually taking place? I was commentating on it for the uh, for the BBC, and so I, I mean, I, I, the music actually sticks in my mind. I, I, I did think it was stunning. The music. I mean, the king mm. loves his music. He's probably our most musical monarch. I think I said it in the book actually. Since yeah. George the Third, he really knows his stuff. And some of those pieces, I mean, I thought the Lloyd Webber anthem was fabulous. I thought the uh, Pretty Yende singing Sacred Fire. I just think that is a magnificent piece of music, which was actually written by one of the King's staff, his deputy private secretary, Graham Davis, wrote, wrote the words for that. You know, th- those, those little moments, I think the homage, I think the fact it was a completely new sort of coronation. I mean, I know it looks as though it's sort of like these, you know, rooted in biblical tradition. It's the crowns and the jewels are all hundreds of years old. And However, it was unlike anything before in that it had other faiths at the heart of it. And that never happened before. When you watch the Queen's coronation in 1953, it's basically a lot of elderly, white, Anglican men, and that's it. And this was 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 just completely different. And you know, I, as a, as a sort of historian and a bit of a sort of anorak when it comes to these things, I, I find that all absolutely gripping. And then just the little stuff. I mean, I love you know the rehearsals where you've got you've got um, Prince William. Um, everyone's very sort of serious as they practice the homage, and it's all very sort of um, somber. And William kneels down to do his homage, and then tickles his father under the chin. Um, and everyone falls back <laughs> laughing. You know, you just think, ah, oh, it's, it's priceless. You managed to get the uh, the phrase uh, "sausage fingers" on film, Robert, which <laughs> amazing, which made my, my outstanding week. iconic. <laughs> Deserves a BAFTA. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he he said it. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, we have a very happy king on the throne now. Yes, of course, he's got his challenges and and things that every day there's a drama of some sort. But you know, he's he's enjoying being king he's sort of relaxed about it and he you know he does make they do make sort of jokes about themselves i mean he did it in a, in, a, in that speech at the mansion house the other day he made a joke about his pens not working so i think the overall the, the, you know the mood is, is 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 pretty good you you do say in the book that he is very cheerful these days and i why these days do you mean post 
becoming king post coronation? Like, well, what has yeah, brought this I mean, cheer? It, 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 general, both actually. I mean, he, you know, I, I started uh, writing about the monarchy about. Um, I'm afraid I'm very old, so it was it was back. At, well, actually, it was in the, the start of the Annus Horribilis of 1992. And you know, since then I've I've sort of followed them, and I I mean I do other stuff. I'm I'm a, a general journalist, but I, I do follow the royals quite closely. And you know, yeah, particularly during the '90s, during the noughties, you know, he he the, the Prince of Wales um, was he was a very sort of thoughtful, studious chap, and he could be quite melancholy. Um, he could be very self-deprecating, and I think you know the combination of having one's private life raked over, one the breakdown of one's marriage absolutely splashed all over the papers for not just day after day, but so year after year. Having all that and at the same time being in this slightly strange position of the heir to the throne, when you're you know, when you're as 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 passionate about things as he is, constantly being constrained, being told, no, you can't do this, so you can't do that, you're not the king, you can't do this. I think you know it. It, it did lead to a, a, a sort of frustration on his part, and, and occasionally that would that would boil over. I mean, he's always been a very genial character. I mean, I, I followed him all over the world over the years. I once made a program about him for his 60th birthday. He's a very interesting person. He's got lots of ideas, lots of things to say. But I think the was that when he was in his um, princely days, if you like, um, uh, you know, he was still. Uh, having to, you know, ask permission to do things. I mean, one thing, by the way, that comes through in the book, and it completely goes against the the narrative in the crown. Sorry to bring the crown up again, but uh, this idea <laughs> that he was somehow impatient to be king, he yeah. wasn't. There was no, absolutely no sense of, you know, I want, I want, I want to get in there, and you know, it's my turn. That it wasn't like that at all. But no, I think, I think now that you know you, you you this is something that's been weighing on your mind for your whole life um and you're you know coming up you're in your 70s and it finally happens i think it does uh, there is a sort of um, release of pressure if you like and you you know you're, you're there is a sense of sort of slightly sort of liberating feel and anyway i i, I don't know whether you've noticed it emily but you know when we're at, uh, at events with the king and queen. And I, by the way, I think the queen is central to all this. Absolutely, queen yeah, Camilla. yeah. Queen Camilla has definitely lightened the mood. So, yeah, it's a, a happy court. Yeah. He does he, he does seem more comfortable in his own skin than ever before, I think he... And, and as you say, the queen is absolutely instrumental in that, isn't she? Mm. Yeah, she's, she's great. She's just... She's very correct. She knows the score, but she, you know, she occasionally she'll refer to him as the boss... And 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 you know, and when they're out and about, she'll always make sure that you know she doesn't sort of uh, jump ahead. That you know he's the main focal point. But oh. but at the, at the same time, you know, when you're when you're there, it's quite clear that there are two bosses in that palace. <laughs> <laughs> and she's uh, she's just yeah, she's I, I I love her sort of um her lightness of touch. I mean, again, during those sort of rehearsals, and I refer to it in the book. You know, there's this moment where they're they're rehearsing the crowning of the king, and the Archbishop of Canterbury is saying to the king, "Sir, you know, you you have to formally give me a nod. Um, I have to have your approval before I crown the queen." And, and Queen Camilla just goes, "Oh, don't bother. I'm perfectly happy." Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think um, certainly, obviously, that this whole subject of a title was an issue for a long time. But of all the people sort of fretting over that, the person who was sort of least concerned, frankly, was the queen herself. She's She's a pragmatist. She's been through a lot. 
she's absolutely of that never complain, never explain generation. And it's it's like you get on with it. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, do you think that she was bothered about the consort? I I, I mean, I think in as much as it mattered a lot to the king, then yes, but no, I I, I personally, I mean, personally, she was, I always thought it was very interesting that straight away when she married the Prince of Wales, the, the, there was no question of her being... I mean, she was the Princess of Wales yeah. from that moment. She, she always was. For, from 2005 up to 2022, she was the Princess of Wales. Mm. Never went near the title, never wanted it. It just wasn't an issue. It was the Duchess of Cornwall, and that's that. Uh, and then, because um, at the start of the reign, if you remember, we, we everyone she was always referred to as the Queen Consort, um, and that was that was the official terminology. You look at the, the court circular at the time, it was the Queen Consort this, the Queen Consort that. And people have said, oh, that's because, you know, um, the, the, the palace was worried about calling her Queen Camilla. I, I don't think it was that. I think it was simply the fact that um, the late Queen had made it very clear in her Accession Day broadcast in 2022 statement when she marked her 70 years on the throne. She talked about how she hoped, you know, that um, her... The Camilla will be the will be the Queen Consort. That that was her choice. That was the word she used. I think it was a sort of uh, an element of respect there for the wishes of of QE two that that she was called the Queen Consort. But the coronation did seem the logical moment to mm. to move forwards and, and just bring bring this reign in line with every yeah. single reign going back to however far back you want to go. Yeah. I mean the. You know, the, the, the wife of a king is the queen and use her first name after queen unless she's a queen regnant. Yeah. I mean, it's lovely to hear that um, that they're happy, they seem happy. Um, but obviously yeah. this first year of the reign hasn't been without its challenges. I mean, how mm. do you think they have fared against those things? Uh, I think um, surprisingly sort of robustly, really. I mean, uh, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about, you know, it was really only a few weeks into the reign and suddenly, you know, we had the first trailers for the new series of The Crown, yeah. followed by the first trailers for Harry and Meghan's six-part Netflix programme, which um, was followed very rapidly by the publication of Spare. And you had, um, between the beginning of October 22 and the beginning of mid to mid-January 2023, you had three months of almost consistent negative headlines, mm, pretty much, yeah. certainly every week, um, sometimes every day largely coming out of, of California, um, but also the side plot of, you know, with the Duke of York. You had all that. And it was it was very con- concentrated. I mm. mean, I you know, I remember back to the 90s when obviously there was a much greater threat to the monarchy because back then, it, you know, the, 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 the rows internally all revolved around the direct line of succession. But then, you know, things were sort of a few months apart. What we what we had October, November, December of 22 was almost sort of every week there'd be some sort of drama, um, you know, the, uh, whatever it might be, the sort of allegation, some, and then and obviously with, with the run-up to and publication of Spare, mm. you know, uh, I mean, <laughs> as someone who's bought a book, book out in January, I, 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 know, I know what it's like to, to you know, when, 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 you, when your book has interesting things in it. I mean, Spare had extraordinary revelations and they were, you know, they, were, they were being debated all around the world. So, you, you know, you have all this going on and yet what I found fascinating was that the, um, the, 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 the actual polling on the, on, the, on the monarchy didn't really move at all. Mm. It didn't, you know, it, it, it went up, it, 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 I mean, it, it obviously hit a sort of peak just, just after the death of the Queen. But overall, the sort of approval ratings. And, and 
you know, the palace doesn't sort of fixate on approval ratings in the way that politicians do. They always take the long view and they're, they're not that obsessed with them. But I do think they're interesting. And they didn't really move at the beginning of, of, of this sort of three-month onslaught. Um, they were around the 65% mark. And at the end, they were still there and nothing much had changed. And I think part of the the change, if you like, in public debate now is is obviously when Harry and Meghan did their big interview with Oprah Winfrey, and you remember this. I mean, mm. what a big, you know, it was astonishing. I mean, that was that mm. was the most, I would say, devastating uh, piece of sort of you know royal interviewing um, since Diana's Panorama interview in 1995, uh, and that that was a shock. But since then, you know, I think everybody's got the message that Harry and Meghan didn't really like royal life very much and they wanted to go and go somewhere else and they felt they weren't properly helped by by the palace by the institution and that there was sort of unfairness and now they're now they're living a new life and they're happy well that you know that was what came through in the oprah winfrey thing but that's really been the same old story ever since and you can only keep on telling the same thing you know so so often so actually when uh, when the, the the Netflix series about their new life came out, it, it was sort of I don't know about you, but I, I just sort of felt I mean I thought it was very sad mm. a lot of it. Um, but I, at the end of it, I thought, well, what what do we actually know that we didn't know before? And the answer is not very much. Mm. And it, 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 again, it's the same sort of theme that runs through spares. So I think I think kind of we've got the message, and it's obviously a great personal sadness when you have a sort of schism like that in a family. But I think it's sort of Everybody knows about it now. It doesn't. It's lost its sort of shock value. It's one of those things. And also, I think you know, every family you know you can think of has a few sort of bust ups and and, and rows and feuds and whatever. I mean, it's just sort of human nature. Did you ever witness that sadness? Because obviously, you accompanied Charles throughout so many months, and obviously, you might have been there on days where some headlines were tougher than others. Did you see a shift? No, I, it's interesting. I mean, he he is very good at. Um, uh, they all are, you know. He, he's just sort of getting on with the job <laughs> thing. I do remember there was a day, in uh, in in I think it was early December, right in the middle of all that, and um, there'd been another. I think the latest round of Netflix stuff had come out, and Harry and Meghan were all over the newspapers, and there was sort of the people resurrecting, you know, the idea that the royal family had been, uh, you know, was somehow. Uh, you know, racist or, or, or not not sufficiently um, modern, um, and you had this that, all that noise coming out in in, in the US. And I just remember that day, you, you know, the Prince of Wales. He was wandering around. He was he visited a uh, an Ethiopian church in North London. He went to a refugee centre. He went to an Advent service with lots of different denominations. And he he looked genuinely happy, and I remember thinking, you know, he's, this is pretty. This is a this has not been a good day in terms of headlines, but mm. he's just sort of getting on with the job. And it, it occurred to me, and I think I say it in the book, you know, you, there are those sort of moments where you look at you know, Harry in his new life, and you look at the king getting on with it, and you think, well, who's actually at the end of all? Who's who's actually having the? Who's enjoying themselves more? Yeah, I think he's in a in a in a good place. Can you see him making up with Prince Harry at some point in the future? Yeah, I, I'm sure he'd, he'd like to do that. I think he's he's an optimist. He's not confrontational. Mm. Uh, I mean, he, he obviously he can be on some things with some people, but I mean, overall, he would. I think he's very much of the of the mindset that you know we can 
that things can get back together, then we can make this work. I, I, yeah, I think he would like that. I think he would definitely, you know, there are certain things you can't, that are non-negotiable. I mean, you can't start, you know, as, as Harry and Meghan discovered, right? When they when they when they left, you can't be half, half loyal. You can't be in and, and sometimes an out. But I think a workable relationship could uh, could evolve, and I'm sure he'd love that. I think it'd possibly be slightly harder, uh, or the, the, the trickier prospect is how does uh, how do how do the two brothers um, reconcile their differences? Yeah. Um, because you know we know William is uh, is a very private man um, who who guards his family's privacy very very closely. You know he's absolutely um, he's very on top of all that. And so I think to have so many tender childhood secrets and stories and conversations just chucked out into the public yeah. domain, I think that that really hurt. And 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 also the sort of veiled criticisms of of the new princess of wales as well i, I just think that that's that's a, a tougher obstacle um but you know as we've seen with the royals all through the years and, and all through history never say never things change never you know never. they move on that we all sort of um adapt and make concessions and get over things so i'm really interested to hear more about the king's relationship with William and Kate, you know, you, you do talk about the fact that they have become closer, um, part, partly because of the transition um, of rain, but also because of this sort of uh, adversity, shall we say, coming from California. But also nice details that he's spending more time with grandkids, for example, on a Sunday afternoon, coming back to Windsor to see them. It was often said before he became king, he didn't really like Windsor very much. You know, it, it's somewhere he, he'd really spent very little time as Prince of Wales, people said, "Oh, it's too noisy. It's got the Heathrow traffic going over. <laughs> he won't. He won't stay there. He'll he'll hand it over to William." But actually, that hasn't been the case at all. He really loves going to Windsor, and he's down there two two nights a week, something like that, um, two or three days. And 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 the fact is that yeah, his British-based grandchildren are, are just you know next to the castle. They're in the grounds, and um, I think you know he 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 loves seeing them. Uh, and also, I think, you know, if we, we hear a lot now about before the death of the Queen, I suppose in the last few years, we, we kept hearing about a slim-down monarchy. How is Charles going to slim down the monarchy? And, of course, he was never going to slim down the monarchy because it, it had gone on a pretty intensive diet in recent years. We couldn't really slim, <laughs> slim anymore. Um, and, and when you look at that slim-down monarchy, and, and, and there has been this new focus on the working the working family, you know, mm. keep hearing this, uh, and we see it, it's... Uh, very visually on the on the palace balcony now, you know those old shots of sort of the extended cousins and second cousins and everybody else um, uh, at, at, at big events. That's not there anymore. It's it's the official photos from the coronation. It was the working family, and um, but when you look at the working family, it's really the only uh, the only ones who aren't either approaching or have already reached retirement age are the prince and princess of Wales. You know they've got a lot of. Uh, a lot of heavy lifting to do. They are the young royal unit, and there's no one else. So, um, uh, and I think they they do it very well. And and uh, you know, again, when you're when you're in charge, when you're the, the the monarch, you know, you you want to know that you've got a solid, dependable team behind you. And I think I think that you know the Waleses have have done that. And I think we'll see increasingly now that they, you know, they will do a lot of the the travelling around the world. As the heir to the throne, 
you become things that like you become the the, the, the chief mourner. Um, you know, if there's a state funeral anywhere in the world, on the whole, monarchs don't don't go to other heads of state's funerals because otherwise they'd be doing that all the time. But it's that's a job for for mm. the for the heir and for the Prince of Wales. And you paint quite a different portrait of him to his father. You know, the notion that he could potentially give up the role of head of the Church of England in future. Really? Well, yeah, I, I, yes. I mean, I, I didn't quite <laughs> put it like that. I mean, what what is definitely the case is he does not share the um, enthusiasm for church uh, that his father has and that his grandmother had, and that actually he's very much like the rest of the country. He goes to church a couple of times a year, and as I say in the book, he's not instinctively comfortable in a faith environment. He doesn't feel... Uh, you know, he's he, he's he's a great respecter of all faiths, all religious traditions. Thinks mm. they're an important part of life, but they're not really for him. And that, that and, and what I say in the book is that therefore, uh, if the moment came when there was a serious move to disestablish uh, the church, it wouldn't matter as much to him. I suspect I, I haven't spoken to him directly about it, but yeah, you know, he wouldn't feel that wrench that his father or his grandmother felt. Um, but I don't I don't for one minute think that there is an active consideration of, of the future defender of the faith ceasing to defend the faith. Obviously, Robert, you were allowed to follow it all, everything that went down over the last year. Um, was there ever a moment where you just felt a bit awkward or felt like, oh, maybe I should step out of this room? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that I, I, I hope we are sort of, um, you, you know, what... Oh, that the one is sort of sensitive enough to, yeah, not not suddenly find yourself where you're not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, let's not forget. I mean, they are at all times. They they have people around them. They've got their security, that sort of thing. But um, no, again, it's 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 a good question. I mean, yes, there was. Yeah, the, we were up at we were up at Balmoral doing some filming, and I was sort of standing over there with a, with a sort of camera crew waiting to sort of go into another room, and and actually we were in the wrong place, and suddenly it's sort of. Um, Sort of prime ministers coming one way and the king's coming the other, and it's like, oh, I think I'll just stand here and say nothing, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and 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 blend in with the wallpaper. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's been a I, I I just think it's been a fascinating glimpse of uh, in a moment that was certainly I I wouldn't expect you know in my lifetime that we'll have a year quite like that 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 twelve month period from. Uh, you know, June June twenty two to the summer of twenty three. I mean, just extraordinary. And 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 yet, underlining it all is what I suppose I've always said, which is I, I you know the, the monarchy is a force for continuity. Um, it doesn't go through even when it goes through great upheavals. It's it's still essentially the same. And I think we've seen that. I would like yeah. to talk to you about you know the naming of Princess Lilibet, and you know, will we ever know? what really happened you know did they ask permission maybe you know harry asked permission years ago didn't really specify it would be lilibet maybe you know the queen thought it would be elizabeth like will we ever get to the bottom of what really happened there i i suspect we probably won't ever get um chapter and verse but um what 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 is clear i think there's been a slight misinterpretation i mean the queen adored harry um right to the end that you know and harry adored her she met Lilibet and thought, you know, and 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 loved her, her granddaughter. That was not an issue. What was at issue was the handling of the story that came after the naming of Lilibet. And and it was the way in which the Sussexes put out statements saying the Queen had been entirely supportive 
uh, of of the name, and 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 it was sort of being you know largely uh, not just suggested but stated that that she'd um, given this her blessing, and this was then followed. I don't know if you remember by a a BBC report saying yes. that um, Queen had not given it her blessing, which was a sort of, as it were, presented as a fait accompli. You know, so that the story got to that point. Then you had the situation where you had the uh, the, the Sussexes firing off legal letters um, to the BBC and others, and more or less demanding the palace corroborate their version of events. And that's when the the the, the real sort of anger kicked in because you don't start telling the Queen to say you said this. You know, that's it was the handling of mm. uh, of of the of the naming row rather than the name. Yes. Right. If I can put it like that. Yeah, yeah. That was that was the root of it. You know, the Queen is very she she was always very correct about, you know, very precise about what she would say on anything. One thing you never did, you could not you could not turn around and say, um, oh, you didn't say that or you said that. You know, she she, she wouldn't put up with that. Oh, she sounds a bit um, like me. Nothing, nothing to do. You know, no, in no way, you know, uh, reduced her her affection and love and affection for for, for Harry and for um, Lilibet. I just need to say that nice. when I was reading your book and I was reading, you know, the chapter about the moment the Queen died when Charles got the call, it was so incredibly moving. It literally brought tears to my eyes. Um, what did you feel learning all these details before anyone else? And was it difficult, you know, writing it down to kind of portray it the way that you did? Because it was incredibly moving. Well, thank you. I mean, it, I, yeah, I found it I found it very moving. And I, I, you know, as I gradually sort of pieced it all together and, you know, I was getting different accounts from different people. And, yeah, there were moments where it sort of, I just sort of think, I, know, I just need to stand back and kind of, you know, how do I... How do I present this? And and the one the one concern I had throughout, I wanted to make sure I, this was done very properly and very sensitively because mm. we are talking about you know the death of one of the most loved people yeah. in the planet. You yeah. Know, you can't, and 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 so it's got to be done respectfully, but also in a way that that sort of conveys the what was going on. And I think there was a sense at the time as well. You know why. Why were why were the family so late getting there? And um, you know, and you also you had Harry saying that he'd been, um, you know, hadn't hadn't been told and all this sort of thing. And and actually, what came to what came through to me quite early on in talking to different people was just genuinely the sort of the sense of shock. Um, people knew the Queen was unwell. People knew she was getting increasingly unwell. And and there was, I think, um, on on those the the, the the day before, there was a sense that. You know, this we could be talking weeks, possibly days. I don't think what anybody realised mm. until that morning was that we were talking hours, and and you know that's that's just the way these things happen. You know, this thing had been planned to the nth degree, and planned very well, I might say, but that never allows for um, you know that element of uncertainty, um, and because um, the Queen was such a, a dogged diligent, um, always determined to do her bit, always determined to sort of, no, I've got to be on parade, I've got to appoint a prime minister, I'm going to do this properly. I think perhaps people just thought, you know, we all thought she's just, you know, she's just going to go on and on and on. Mm, um, yeah. and, 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 you know, she's such a stalwart, she'll get over this. And and then, you know, it's 
the way it happened so quickly, though, and where it happened, and the fact that the Prince of Wales did manage to get to her that day, I think all these things put them all together. It was, it was, as, as one of one of her former aides said, it was a masterclass. You know, it was absolutely. You look at other transitions over the years, and there's always been a drama, or you know, things have just dragged on and on and on, or somebody. I'd know. I mean, the Queen was one of the last people to hear she'd become Queen in 1952 when her father died. But this, this actually, you know, there's a hackneyed old phrase: "It's what she would have wanted." But boy, um, mm, I think yeah. you know, uh, to, to be at Balmoral to see see those scenes in Scotland. Robert, it's been an absolute delight to have you. We could talk to you all day. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. You so for your much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you both. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, Robert is a busy man. He is super in demand at the moment. Um, I think his phone went off a million times during that, yeah. just in case you heard any any bleeps or bumps. Sorry, um, listeners, but yeah. we did not want to interrupt him. It was all too good. Too we apologise. Who knows? It could have been Charles on the other line. Oh, no, <laughs> don't want to. <laughs> but what a fascinating man and what a year he's had. I mean... What, what access is just incredible. Yeah, I mean, look, Robert's a brilliant journalist and he's, uh, and, and you know, and he reminded us during the conversation that he is a generalist. He, he writes about all sorts of things, but he has had this amazing access. And I think what an achievement to have taken down all of those details. And that's history now, as he said himself. It was just a fantastic opportunity. I can't stop thinking of all the things he couldn't add to that book. Surely there was something that could not go in. We'll never know, guys. We'll never know. Oh, I didn't think about that, but now I am. <laughs> we'll have to get him back. <laughs> so that's everything from us today. Thank you so much to our guest, Robert Hardman, and to you two for joining us. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, check out more from Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. 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 